across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder and me, Matt Bentman. Just the two of us here in the studio, Sue Bailey can't be with us. So here's Alan to start us off with today's rundown. Uh, yes, we hear from Jenny Cousins, director of what is soon to be the country's first food museum. I mean, this whole thing is like a journey we're trying to take people on. And every time I meet someone over this, like you kind of pick up some new ideas and some new directions and some new collaborations. And we've had some really interesting people get in touch over like what it is that we're trying to do. Shahida Rahman and Ibrahim Rahman talk about the work of the Karim Foundation, which helps struggling families. Yes, so we are helping other communities, from those from Eastern European backgrounds, African origin as well, providing the food that they would normally eat. So we're helping all sorts of people, so we're not just particularly focusing on one community. Chef Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, has a challenge for us. So what I want to set a little challenge today is, over the next month, if you can go out and twice when you would go pike salad, go into the garden and pick your own greens, I think that would be a wonderful thing. The more of us can do that, it will really make, start to make a difference. And what we'll talk about quickly now is what plants you can actually find and do that with. We have a look at the chef's shortage that's affecting restaurants, well, almost everywhere. We've got the VAT, it's going to go up, which is going to cause huge problems. The wage bills, the national insurance, that's all going up. There's a lot of people throwing money at the problem to try and get the chefs. So the yeah. benchmark goes up and someone might be paid 25, 30,000 pounds, but they're not worth that much money. So it's not a good situation for restaurants. And we've lots of local food and drink news. And at the end of the programme, a rundown of food related jobs available in the local area. And food-related jobs is where we start today, because in recent months, our jobs section has been getting bigger and bigger as we report more chef positions available around Cambridge. Jay Littlechild and Matt Collins are local chefs, but they work at Mill Road Butchers with their manager, Charlie Wicks. So I asked Jay and Matt why the change in profession, and in their opinion, what's going on with the industry? Starting with Matt. Really, it was just running out of steam of being a chef. 14 years in the business of working constantly, never really taking any kind of breaks. And then COVID came along, the pub I was in shut down for nine months because they couldn't operate. So I had nine months of furlough, slowly got back to becoming kind of a real person, actually cooking myself meals, kind of discovering, actually, I do enjoy cooking. And that's the reason why I started doing it. And then coming back after furlough ended, back into the kitchen and then realising I don't, want to, I don't want to do this. My passion had really died and I didn't realise how burnt out in the chef's business I was until I stopped. I didn't consider that before, that Covid gave people a chance to step away from the grindstone and just think for a bit. 
a lot of chefs have hit that same kind of burnout and now have looked for their other professions and find something new, really. Here's Jay. Yeah, so I was in kitchens for about nine years from when I was literally like kind of 14, almost started as a dishy, worked my way up to being a sous chef. Lockdown last time, I come back and work with these lads here. Being the team at the Mill Road Butchers. About a year and a bit or something. Yeah, about a year, year and a half. Left, went back to kitchens for six months and realised, this, I'm not going back to kitchens, this is horrible. Um, I still do bits of it now, but it's just, I lost it, I lost all touch with reality again. You're doing 60, 70 hours a week, short stuff, because no one wants to come do it. Yeah. Every chef is the same now. No one wants to put in that kind of work. You get the younger, younger lads in who try and do it, but they're paying not enough for people you need to have trained staff in, and they're just chucking monkeys at you. It's a nightmare, and I know so many chefs across the board are still in Cambridge who are looking at leaving the industry because it's not getting any better. All employers will always say, we'll get better, we'll sort it out, we'll sort it out, and it just doesn't happen. I still dabble, I still do a shift a week when they need me, but I think as a full-time job, stress levels and things like that, I'm not that interested anymore. When I can come here, get creative, and just kind of crack on and get things done, it's nice work under Charlie. He's decent, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Some might say. <laughs> he's all right, I'll keep him. So, Jay and Matt have switched to being butchers. What about the other chefs they know? Obviously, supermarkets were crying out for staff during lockdown. So two of them have went to be van drivers. When they were told their restaurant's reopening, they just said, no, we're not coming back. Get paid pretty much the same money. They sit in their van, they drive their routes. Why go back to doing 13-hour shifts where you don't leave the kitchen? It's hot, it's stressful, you, you just crack on. And I think that's why there's a lot more publicity around burnout in jobs because there's no time for it. It's like, well, the amount of times it's just chef, all right, just go outside, have a quick cigarette, be back in two minutes. And it's like, oh, I'm fixed now. <laughs> I'm back in, I can keep going. Or, yeah, just smash down a, a quick bite to eat in the corner of the kitchen. Yes. The amount of times you see a chef sitting on a mop bucket over a bin inhaling food like a duck, not even swallowing, <laughs> just because you've got to get back on the pass. Waiting for it to go cold so you can eat it quicker. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, for me, that realisation of I, I just want to get out of it. I didn't want to leave it completely because I still have the interest. And yeah, that's where, to me, butchery was quite a logical step and I was lucky enough to get the chance to move into it, really. And like with any passion, you may not be doing it as a profession, but it is still in your blood. But maybe COVID gave some the chance to channel their passion into similar vehicles. I still love cooking, but on that kind of scale of the stress you get put under, you can do smaller projects yourself with other people. There's enough chefs around who will do little pop-ups and stuff. Pop-ups? How many pop-ups have we featured on the programme? So they try and give you the support in the companies, but if the staff isn't there to give it, they can't do anything about it. That's the problem. Yeah. They could put up the wage for people to get people interested, but then it's still, you've got a commie chef coming in at a CDP level, and it doesn't actually help. Like, it's, it can do, it's, it's still a pair of hands, but when you need trained hands, it's not going to... What, even three, four years ago, yeah. I was on about 26 as a sous chef, and that went up dramatically. They have to pay the wage if they want the people to do it, otherwise they won't come. They'll, like, they'll go to a big like, site where, or do agency. Agency chefs are killing it at the moment, but they'll go and work there. The agency charges the companies £25, you're still taking back £18 an hour, and you can pick your hours. So yeah. people don't want to be doing this 60-hour hours, 60 hours weeks anymore. <laughs> you've done five AFDs in a row, so oh, you've only done five days. It's like, hang on, what am I doing? I haven't seen daylight in months. <laughs> it seems to have been their go-to thing, has just been, we'll just throw money at people. Yeah but that's only going to go so far. People take money for a while and they'll go, well, thanks for that six months bump. I'm off now. I've had my money. 
and part of the why you see the food truck scene exploding is people have got enough money for their food trucks able to do what they want to do you get out on the road you've got the freedom if you want to find a nice food park you park up you're there for the whole day yeah it's just a lot of that blowing up recently a lot of food vans and independent mm. traders oh, who can yeah. go i can do this myself i can do it better why am i following company spec sheets yeah. when i know i can make something better myself i've been doing this for 10 years well, like, locked in a box with no windows for 13 hours yeah. a day I literally, since having this, having this chat, I've had a text saying someone, one of the chefs who got COVID somewhere at a site, can you come and help me? And they're not going to be able to get covered for this evening, so they're now going to be a man down. That's what a couple of chefs just in, in, in the doghouse for another night. Can't do it, and there's nothing they can do about it because you haven't got emergency call-out chefs, which are a thing, unless you know someone. The chef's off for two weeks, your sous chef or head chef's off. That's you guys, completely ruined. Like, it's just back-to-backs. But just, the, the business still has to operate. And I get that from when you work for a company, that's what they expect, but also doing like 14 days straight just because someone's been off with COVID. Yeah. And then they wonder why you're off three days after that because you're completely burnt out. You, a normal cold, which you could slap away because you're run down, it kills you. And you end up off for like three or four days because you can't get out of bed because your body's giving up on you. <laughs> and that's all while still receiving messages from the company about in? where are you? Can you come in? No, I can't walk. <laughs> I just feel like a lot of people now they want a good work-life balance and I feel like the chef industry and quite a lot of most hospitality industries really, they just don't offer that work-life balance everyone's looking for nowadays. And that's when I got Jay back because he had texted me and said that hospitality had crashed and I said, I've got no staff, mate. Like, do you fancy a week's work? So he came back in for the week and was like, oh, I've got a bit of a better life here. And I, my job practice. Yeah, I, don't have, I don't have to work like insanely hard as what I would do in a chef. Now, it's not all doom and gloom in hospitality and chefing at the moment. For balance, here's Jay with some positivity. Yeah, well, I've got a mate who's probably 19, and he called me up one day when I was, I was still working in the kitchen. Yeah. I need a hand today. Can you, I don't care if you haven't got any experience, but if you're free, come in and I'll sort you out. And he come in, I wasn't expecting much from the poor lad, if I'm quite honest with you, and we started getting rammed. And he turned around, and he's just slamming out these starter plates. I'm like... Hang on, what's going on here? Oh, this boy's smashing it, like actually smashing it. It was the first time in a while I've seen a young guy work hard. Yeah, and he, he stayed there, he stayed still, he's there pretty much full time now working two jobs. He's at one place and there. And I left that place obviously and he, he stayed and he's loving it. You know, he wants, to, he wants to go into chefing. I'm like, brilliant, be careful, don't let it take your life. But he loves it and it's like duck to water. And that's the first person I've seen in a while just like, actually graft. Jay Scrimshaw from the Finn Boys, also on Mill Road, had this to say regarding young chefs. What about people who are starting out? What are the positives for them? Because, you know, sometimes they don't see the customer and maybe the task they've got is rather more mundane. Yeah. I mean, you've been there. I think it's probably different now. When I went to college, say, you know, we had our own restaurant. I think there was a bit more funding and it seems the colleges are now all private, private and there's not enough funding, so the kids aren't getting enough experience. So they're coming out into the trade, not knowing the basics. And it's not their fault, it's just the way that the system is done. Yeah, it's tough for young chefs, definitely, but there's no way I could sit in an office nine to five when I was 18. So I would recommend anyone who doesn't get on with that way of life to do it, because it's the reward, not financial reward though, when you're starting off, but the rewards are, are massive, Great. I think. You know, food education nowadays in school is horrendous. You're just sitting down reading out of a book. And what, what do you really learn from reading out of a book when you're talking about a practical workload? If, if they did a more practical side of training in schools and colleges, I feel like a lot more kids would kind of go, 
oh, this is great fun. This is actually really enjoyable. I like this. Let's have a crack at doing this as a profession. And I just feel like until there's more ground-fronting infrastructure, the later part of life is just going to be as we are now, in a position where we can't find the staff and no one really wants to work the long, hard hours and do the hard graph when they can get an easier job just filming a YouTube video. So there you go. You've got the furlough period that's making people fully realise the stress that chefing has put them under and then realising that they can adapt and use their skills in other ways, like with pop-ups, with street food, with food trucks, becoming agency chefs, choosing the hours they want, just being their own bosses. And of course, Brexit has played its part too. Now, this is a problem without an obvious solution for the hospitality industry, but it was interesting to hear what the problems are from the chef's point of view. Yeah. On to our first news roundup of the day, and food has had quite a few mentions in the national press this week. Our favourite piece was from the Daily Star on Tuesday, in which food writer Felicity Cloak was described in the front page headline as a food lovey who was a sarny short of a picnic <laughs> for recommending putting marmalade on your bacon butty instead of tomato sauce or brown sauce. What do you think, Matt? <laughs> well, brown sauce always with bacon butties. It, it may sound a bit odd what Felicity Cloak said, but sweet and meat goes together, as we know. Chocolate and beef, for example. And yeah, we, we've got uh, George Heffer in St Ives Market. Now, he's an expert cake maker. One of his specials is bacon and maple syrup cake. So that's strips of bacon lined around a tiered cake, then drizzled in maple. Uh, George was on Flavour about five years ago. I saw him at St Ives Market last month. But there you go. And we're not fans of the Daily Star, but it's front page splash on Thursday ran as curry spices prices crisis. That's pretty good. <laughs> Tricky to say when you've had a mouthful of marmalade covered bacon though. <laughs> Two more serious stories appeared in Thursday's Guardian. Uh, one was about a successful trial in Kenya of growing crops beneath solar panels known as agrivoltaics. It resulted in reduced water loss and in larger plants. And the other story was from the National Farmers Union annual conference, which was meeting, as the article put it, against the backdrop of huge upheaval in agriculture with labour shortages caused by both Brexit and COVID, an ongoing pig cull and transition to life beyond the EU subsidy scheme. Not happy people. Mm. Some local news now. Calverley's Brewery is involved in a Purcell and a Pint. This is a concert at Michael House Cafe in Trinity Street, and it's tonight where you'll be transported back to the alehouses of 17th century England with rowdy drinking songs, popular fiddle tunes and folk music, all brought to you by the musicians of Eboricum. Now, you're welcome to join in the rowdy fun, but should you miss that, Iboricum will be playing in the Granchester Orchard on the 9th and 10th of June, where the music will include Bach's Coffee Cantata. Yes. Next Wednesday, the wine tasting at the Wine Rooms in Hills Road, that's the 2nd of March, is matching white wine with mini pancakes. That's from 6 till 7. And on the 16th of March, the Wine Rooms has an evening with Nick Edwards of Saffron Grange Winery, who will present four of their cuvées to match a four-course tasting menu designed by chef Liz Young. There are only 21 places and the cost is £65 per person. And there's only a few tables left at the station, which is at 21 Station Place. This is for the Oyster Labs evening on the 2nd of March 
from 6pm. If you're interested, you can email henry at theoysterlab.co.uk for tickets or send a direct message via Instagram. Places are available on the 4th and 5th of March at Pudini Supper Club in Willingham, where the chef of those nights will be a former winner of MasterChef, Julie Friend. And there's also a Mother's Day Supper Club at Pudini on the 27th of March at 1.30, for which bookings are now being taken. The price for these events is £40 per person. Biscotti di Debra has a tasting day for people getting married this summer. It's on the 6th of March. It's at the Dry Drayton Bakery. One-hour slots are available to taste a variety of wedding cakes. Sessions begin at 10am. If you like the sound of that, you can email biscottidebra at gmail.com and Debra is spelt D-E-B-O-R-A. Yeah, actually, we should say that uh, Deborah has recently tweeted to say that it's all the slots have sold. Oh, right. So she may organise another day, so still worth contacting her. Mm. Cambridge Wine Merchants in Bridge Street has a tasting of, of six Bicar Salmon champagnes with Charlie Weathered, their brand ambassador. It's on the 2nd of March at 7.30 and is £45 per person. And that ends our news for today. <laughs> Food-wise, uh, uh, well, to err is human. <laughs> so we. Um, oh, sorry again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but good food is divine. Um, um, uh, um yeah. <laughs> so listen to Flavor on Cambridge 105 Radio. We'll put the heating on as well. We've got, yes. <laughs> got nice fairy lights. <laughs> Amazingly, this country doesn't have a food museum. It has museums which deal with a specific food, like the Cadbury Museum in Bourneville, or with aspects of food like the Brand Museum in London's Notting Hill, but no food museum. But next month, all this changes when the Museum of East Anglian Life in Stowmarket becomes the Food Museum, all 75 acres of it. Uh, you can get there by train from Cambridge, and then it's a 10-minute walk from Stowmarket Station. I went on Wednesday and met Director Jenny Cousins. This year, one focus will be food and drink from hedgerows, but as Jenny explained, there's an awful lot more as well. As part of the Food Museum, I know you're advertising quite a lot of roles at the moment, and I think the closing date's very soon, but can you just tell us what sort of jobs you've got to give us an idea of what we might experience when we come here? There are two areas which we're trying to build particularly through this. So one is starting a new cafe, and that's one of the areas, because um, obviously food at the Food Museum needs to be good. But also we're recruiting to a number of demonstrator roles, which are sort of seasonal roles, showing skills, processes, that kind of thing. What, like, like what? Because we're focusing on hedgerow, a lot of them are going to be around sort of food you can make with hedgerow products or inspired by, you know, hedgerow flavours. Oh, right, so you'll um, be running sort of classes, will you, showing... Sort of, I would say, smaller demonstrations. We do run some classes, like we've got jam-making things happening as well. We do bread workshops, that kind of thing, with our outdoor oven, and it's definitely an area that we're trying to build. I mean, this whole thing is like a journey we're trying to take people on, and every time I meet someone over this, like, you kind of pick up some new ideas and some new directions and some new collaborations that we've had some really interesting people get in touch over like what it is that we're trying to do so I don't know what it's going to be like in a few years time but <laughs> what I hope is that it will be a kind of 
participatory experience it will be something where you'll come and you'll be able to taste something you'll you know have your senses assailed you'll be able to smell things you'll be able to get your hands dirty we're really keen to get people out there like touching the soil and looking at the growing side of food not just the tasting side of it yeah. um, but the whole process i'm amazed by this outdoor oven where our outdoor ovens a thing well it's a bread oven yeah and i have to say since we built it it's been pretty much in like constant use for a number of different projects really so we've run a, a holiday activity program which is for kids in receipt of free school meals and that was around like cooking skills for the kind of under 10 so they made bread they learned knife skills some of which was a bit hairy at times but it was it was really positive and then they all ate together we've done a project working with Suffolk um, refugees on like the shared heritage of bread and people teaching each other sort of different forms of bread that's called the skills kitchen we also worked with like local families on that as well and home start families to try and build again like cooking skills and taste education getting people to try things that they hadn't perhaps before I think people are always more prepared to try something if they've had a go at making it. And especially if they did something as part of that, like going to the wall garden and picking a vegetable that they hadn't perhaps eaten. So we definitely saw some people who had been very reluctant to pick up a green thing, um, <laughs> uh, treat it in a very different way once they'd actually cooked it themselves. But then also we did things with the bread oven, like we had a programme that's running again in this summer called In the Trees. We had different chefs in each week and a different music act as well, so in collaboration with the local arts centre. And the chefs showcased what they did using the bread oven um, as part of that, so it's a kind of mixture of outdoor cookery. And that was really lovely. Like We had some really interesting people in, including someone from Cambridge who came to the Modern Table, came and did a really nice... Um, um a really nice evening at the museum. So we're hoping to do that again this year. Yeah, that's Liz Young from The Modern Table. That's fantastic. That's really, that sounds really good fun. You talked about refugees, but the cultural influences on what people in this country eat are extraordinary, presumably, because of our past as a, a builder of an empire. I think it's obviously part of the story we want to tell. I mean, I think food is is really interesting as something that people hang on to. You know, they might lose the language, but they keep the food. It's something that, you know, people hold to them when they migrate. And you can see that in the sort of story of food in the UK and what has spread and the sharing of food. It seems to be an area that I think people are like, they're more willing to embrace it's something that people have really been able to absorb into the culture. So I think exploring that is really interesting. Food is such a big topic. So how are you going to limit yourself? We would look at things like the social history of food, who's made it historically, how, all of that sort of thing. We'd look at processes, taking the things through stage by stage. So, for example, the story of bread from a seed in the field to a loaf of bread. We are interested in the environmental side. We're interested in the industrial side. We're really interested in sort of every aspect of it in a way that a museum can by revealing stories associated with food. Local people's stories of food are part of it, then? 
Definitely. I mean, I think like people are interested in people. They're interested in the people who make things, um, who grow things, in what their lives have been like in the past and in what their lives are like today. We're not just interested in the past of food. We're interested in the present and the future as well. And what we have in our collection here is a very strong local history collection. So we'll be able to bring more out of storage and on display to tell some of those food stories. And what about people's memories of what they've eaten? Because what we eat changes, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think like food memories, they're so evocative for people, aren't they? I mean, you, you can sort of smell and taste the past and your memories of the past are so strong through your recollections of food. So one of the ways that we're looking to do that is through an exhibition that we're working on for 2023 called School Dinners, which is very much around people's sort of memories of, of the food they ate and what they thought about it. And also the, the language of, of food changes and, and, and varies from different parts of the country as well. Is that something you might cover? Absolutely. So one of the, the projects that we've got on the go, um, in, and that is actually kind of happening in April through to June this year, is um, we're taking an exhibition called Food Stories on the road to village halls in Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex. And it's partly a collaboration with the University of Leeds, inspired by a dialect collection that they have. We're kind of updating that from the 1950s to the current day, collecting dialect words and food memories and recipes as we go. It doesn't have to just be about like what you put in your mouth. It can be the whole sort of story around that. What about beer? If this area used to produce lots of hops? So it's our 25th anniversary beer festival in the summer and the museum is, is quite a large estate. We've got 75 acres and part of that 75 acres was formerly used for growing hops and you can see the remains of the sort of hot beds. So we're hoping to restore part of that so that people can see how they were grown. Our beer festival always has like a new brewer's showcase, but it also has a showcase from another region. And this year, I think we're focusing on a showcase to do with hedgerow beers because of the fact that we are doing a big exhibition called Hedgerow, which will open in the summer. And therefore, there's a sort of hedgerow theme to the beer festival this year as well. Right, so what's a hedgerow beer? They might have an element of something like elderflower, or they might be a saison, they're using some sort of might be rose hips or something along those lines so we're working with a few different breweries on that should we go and look at a few things then yeah great so here's the outdoor oven it's <laughs> it's really quite big so what, what uh, what's cooked in it then bread presumably Large, largely bread yeah but actually all kinds of things we've been trying um some fabulous sort of stewed fruit things in the summer as well but yeah largely bread in the summer we try and keep it in you so that you can warm it up in advance and then we use it like a few days in a row because uh, it retains the heat it well. retains the heat well big brick i suppose exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> it uses wood from one of our local woods and from the site um we um we've, we've got a lot of experience with this because we also make charcoal on site so the charcoal oh, maker yeah. also supplies the wood for the oven yeah. that's an ancient <laughs> skill isn't it charcoal making yes it is our charcoal is absolutely fantastic he's very proud of the fact that it burns like entirely clear it's um it's very good quality entirely clear what no smoke no smoke yeah yeah. wow fantastic (laughs) (laughs) what a lot of buildings you've got at the heart of the estate the queen anne house and victorian stables a medieval barn 18th century workers cottages um, and a fishing lodge in the middle of a lake area so that's the historic estate 
And there's, are there still fish in the in the lake? Yeah, there are. I mean, it's a medieval. The residents, the servants, the staff needed as well. So where we're standing at the moment, um, you can just see the tip of the medieval barn. Yes. Um, and this would have been like the farmyard space. So the, this would have been known as the home farm. And there would have been other things like you know, sort of smaller agricultural buildings around, but they've all been lost apart from the medieval barn. So what's this building? So this is the farm barn, which is our kind of newest space. It's used for all kinds of things that require the ability to make a bit of a mess in here. So, for example, things like apple pressing, lamb feeding, that kind of thing as well. Um, but it's a big space that's undercover because um, we really struggle with, like, you know, an all-weather experience. And this means that we can do things regardless of what the weather is like. It's also a big space that we can work with groups in. So this whole timeline of the development of growing food is used with school groups and with groups who are in here on a daily basis. So we do an activity twice a day, which is sort of like have-a-go farming. But I find the, the timeline, the recent sort of developments on the timeline, the hydroponics, organic farming. And I was thinking, as I saw it, what is precision farming? It's, and it's got something about robotics on there. Yeah, use of robotics and things like that in order to be able to deliver sort of very specific doses of things or um, um, to be able to monitor things using drones so that you know the right time. So rather than taking like a prophylactic approach where you just sort of douse the whole field with some fertiliser or pesticides or stuff like that, it's the ability to monitor things in a much more precise way. Yeah. This crop area, what sort of crops do you grow then? So we're trying to sort of showcase a uh, um, four-course rotation. I'm not sure what we've got due to go in this year, but it's usually obviously a combination of things like wheat, barley, turnips, clover. And quinoa as well. Yes, I mean, we're, we're kind of interested in all the different things that people are growing in East Anglia, and one of the things that is being grown in East Anglia today... Is um, quinoa? In, in Essex is quinoa, yeah. Is it really? So, well, you can see over there, we can't go in at the moment because it's in the press of being restored, but the scaffolding is around our watermill, oh. um, and that will be hopefully open by the summer, back to working order. We've had to um, replace the mill shaft. But here we are in the orchard has got about 80 trees, a mixture of apples, pears, cherries, quinces, mulberries, medlars, uh, cobnuts, sort of everything you can think of really, but a mixture of East Anglian varieties and also um, sort of things that you would recognise in the supermarket or further afield. So these are some of our animals, turkeys, the peacocks are the newest addition. Our horse. This is Faith. Oh, nice. Some good breeding there. Suffolk pump. Yeah, the Food Museum has a huge amount of interest. A big and beautiful site, displays about food, crops, animals, machinery, buildings. The medieval barn is beautiful and a lot of special events and demonstrations. And as I said, an easy train ride from Cambridge, a great place to go. We're off for a two-minute break now. When we return, we'll hear from the Carrium Foundation and the foraging chef. Don't go away. Cambridge 105 Radio.
This Sunday, join me, Tony Barnfield, as I hear about the Cambridge Festival from the man in charge, David Kane, and some of those involved, including astronomer royal Martin Rees, virologist Dr Chris Smith, and Channel 4's former head of news and current affairs, Dorothy Byrne, now president of Murray Edwards College. There's the latest news of the performing arts, Anna Lapwood on the Pembroke Festival of Voice, award-winning playwright Rebecca King, and some of the students staging shows at the ADC and Corpus Playroom in the week ahead. That's all here on Cambridge 105 Radio with me, Tony Barnfield, this Sunday afternoon at 2. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio and welcome back to flavor as we know food prices are going up rapidly and another hike in energy prices is coming in april it means that a lot of people are unable to afford enough food and need help Sue spent some time at the Cambridge Mosque recently talking to Shahida and Ibrahim Rahman of the Kareem Foundation about how they've managed to reach families who are reluctant to come forward for food help and those whose food requirements can't always be met by Cambridgeshire's food banks and food hubs. We decided to set up our own charity, so it led to that. We launched in September 2020 and it was named after my late father, Abdul Kareem, so he arrived in Cambridge in 1957. He passed away in 1985, and we wanted to do something in his memory. We've been continuing our work, identifying families in partnership with the Cambridge Ethnic Community Forum and also with Cambridge City Council. We've been working through third persons because what we found was people from ethnic minority backgrounds were very reluctant to come forward, felt ashamed of even asking for help. I don't think anyone wants to be in that position, but to actually go out and ask for help, that's really quite something for some people. So we've managed to work with a community support worker at Cambridge City Council. So we don't know who we're exactly helping because these people actually know us, so they don't want to be identified. So that's worked out really, really well. And the fact is that we've been able to help families. We can't see the families, but we've been able to help them knowing that the food support and also the fuel support. And now we're coming into April where we're going to see the prices of you know, energy rising and we're expecting uh, it's going to be even more busier where people are going to come forward for uh, just help with food and fuel support. 
Families that we're helping, we are providing culturally appropriate food. So what we discovered with the city food banks in Cambridge, they cater for families, but sometimes these ethnic minority families don't like the food that are being served to them. So we discovered, okay, we need to do something. You know, we need to help those communities who are not coming forward for that reason, because we've been able to provide culturally appropriate food like halal meat and chicken to Muslim families. So you mentioned halal foods, but also obviously there are other culturally appropriate foods that don't necessarily get into food banks too. Yes, so we are uh, helping other communities from those from Eastern European backgrounds, African origin as well, providing the food that they would normally eat. So we're helping all sorts of people. So we're not just particularly focusing on one community. And what we found is that just identifying people in that way, these invisible communities, we would say, uh, for them to come forward through our community uh, support worker, I think it's been absolutely amazing. I think one thing, we don't actually see who we're helping, knowing that they've actually received some food. Uh, I think that's that's been really uh, amazing. So have you had any feedback from this through the um, system, yes. as it were? Yes, so through the Cambridge Ethnic Community Forum, I've had messages of support where one lady said, she wouldn't have known what she would have done if she if we weren't there to be able to help her with food and fuel support. One other lady said we're a lifesaver. Just to even hear these words, it's so meaningful for us that we're actually be able to do something to help them. And that's what our foundation is about. We want to help communities, all communities, not just focusing on one community and knowing that, you know, we are there, uh, you know, just to help just for the normally, normal grocery shopping and items that they would normally have. But that only came about because of the pandemic. It's not something that we envisaged. So it's been an amazing journey and we're learning all the time. Given the fact that we hope the pandemic is coming towards its end slowly, what is going to be the impact on going forwards for the foundation, would you say? I think people's problems and difficulties won't end there just because the pandemic is getting better. People are going to have all sorts of issues. I think what the pandemic has done is identified issues that were already there, you know, highlighting them more. So people are going to continue having these problems and with the, the, the energy price rises as well, people's uh, situation is going to be complicated. So we are there to continue our work and to help people as things change, people's lives will change in different ways, but we want to be able to help them and support them through the work that we do. And Ibrahim, in terms of your communication, letting people know about the foundation, is what do you see as being your role, your key role, and what do you see as the way of going forward for the foundation? As a key volunteer, I lead on the communications for the foundation, but I've always seen my role as being something that's absolutely crucial in terms of explaining to our wider audiences, our wider communities about the work that we're doing. And I do that through social media. I do it through our website where we put out certain messages, certain news stories, and then we try and distribute this to um, the local and regional media outlets as well. I actually work as a social media manager at the University of Cambridge, so a lot of the work that I do in my day job is transferable to the work that I do for the foundation, and, and I'm learning a lot from both sides, really. Essentially, we've started something from scratch, and to build any kind of social media brand, you could say, just is quite a challenge, uh, especially when you're doing it organically, which we're doing here. We're doing it as we're all volunteers, uh, the trustees and myself. So we're all just giving our time, we're all doing it for free. It's certainly been really rewarding 
rewarding, but to see the impact that those messages have and of how it's brought donations to the charity as well, of course, we're all hugely grateful. And most importantly, how they're supporting those in need. So the message really is from us to please you know, keep supporting the work that we're doing and hopefully we'll continue to help the communities in need who are out there in Cambridge. And I gather that there has been quite a substantial donation, not via the Karim Foundation, but actually via the mosque. So Cambridge Centre Mosque, they partnered with Islamic Relief as a charity. They donated food, grocery items to the mosque. And what we did is we identified families and individuals who we've helped in the past through our foundation so they could receive food packs. And that's something that they also did with Cambridge City Council. So for these people to also receive donations through the mosque, that's been amazing. And that's the work that I also do as the outreach work is where we identify people that we want to help. And I think that's really important to work alongside with different organisations because us being a small charity, you know, it, it's very difficult. As Ibrahim said, we, we started from scratch. We're making connections all the time. You know, every connection means some donation, however small it is, to continue and continue to grow. So, um, mm. And that's what we want to do. We want to help as many people as possible. And that is the ethos of our charity. We want to help people for those who are vulnerable and ho- those who are in dire need. So this recent uh, donation of over eight tonnes of food um, has been distributed through various sort of community hubs, I gather. But that's in one sense a one-off. So what you're doing with the Karim Foundation is ongoing support. And that that's why, you know, we do uh, call for further donations so we can continue our work. And I think the way that people have supported us has been absolutely amazing. You know, we couldn't have done it without their donations. We would have been at a standstill. And also for Cambridge City Council for recognising us as a, an organisation. And I think we are the only organisation in Cambridge that provides culturally appropriate food. And that's something that we are very proud of and we hope that we can continue to help all communities. One thing that we've certainly got coming up, we're hoping to start our next Cambridge Ramadan appeal. This is something that we did last year between April and May of 2021 and that enabled us to continue the work that we were doing. Basically we launched an online fundraiser and we asked people to please donate towards this and this would help us to continue providing emergency food support for those in need. So that's another thing that we'd like to continue doing this year. Uh, As my mother mentioned um, about the concerns over fuel poverty, basically we also see the work that we do is about educating our communities as well it's not just about asking people to donate to certain causes but also to explain to them why are we doing this and how can you be part of it how can we improve uh, with the situations that we're facing at the moment a lot of it I would say um, education is a crucial part of that. I think it's a really important thing to do to support the community in the most helpful way possible because food is such an essential fuel poverty is something that I think we're going to have to sadly live with and let's hope that the donations keep coming in and that's probably the most important thing so that you can continue with your work. In terms of being able to find out more about support for the Karim Foundation and a little bit more about the work that's being done there and future work, how do we go about that? 
simply visit kareemfoundation.co.uk. That's our official website. You can find out all about the work that we're doing. Uh, you can also find us on your favorite social media channels. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We've got a YouTube channel as well. Uh, so please like, follow and subscribe across all our social media platforms. And I particularly like your logo, which is a heart a bit like an apple and Karim Foundation improving lives. That's lovely. That was uh, designed by Duncan Bamford, who we've known for many, many years. He lives in Wales, but he came up with something simple. It's like a, a small tree growing with a heart. It really says a lot. And that was Shahida and Ibrahim Rahman from the Karim Foundation talking to Sue last week. The Karim Foundation is well worth our support. <laughs> And there's the music signalling time for the latest news from social media. Uh, yeah, Brewboard in Harston is open from 1 o'clock till 8 o'clock today, Saturday, with the Six Nations on view. And food from Hitch Wrap from 4pm. Finn Boys have mussels on the menu, mussels from St Austell's, and you can also buy them in store. That's the fish butchery at Two Mill Road. And there's a recipe for mussels creole from Gourmandise on Instagram, which she posted this morning morning. Cambridge Sustainable Food has posted a, a job kickstart community food centre assistant. The deadline is the 1st of March. More info via their website. <laughs> And as we look forward to March foraging, it's time for Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, and he has a challenge for us. So a real bugbear of mine is when we've got these lovely spring greens coming through and everyone goes to the shops and buys packets of plastic packaged salad. Absolutely does my head in. There's some really great plants out there and so many of them you will know already. So what I want to set a little challenge today is over the next month, if you can go out and twice when you would go pike salad, go into the garden and pick your own greens, I think that'd be a wonderful thing. The more of us can do that, it'll really make, start to make a difference. And what we'll talk about quickly now is what plants you can actually find and do that with. Quite easy. So there should be loads. If you're a bit of a gardener, you'll know most of these. Otherwise, do your research. Make sure you know it's right before you eat, obviously. But there's a lot that you can do that you will know. So we've got wonderful leaves coming up that are dandelions we're going to start with. Really easy to identify. We should all know them. They're a really good replacement for things like rocket. They're not quite as peppery, but they bring the bitter notes, certainly, and the green notes into it. One of my absolute favourite little salad screens is chickweed. And I know a lot of people will know that in the garden. You've got the little Mohican stripe of hairs down on the stem. That's a good one to look out for. The pairing of the petals on the flowers is a good thing. The stretchy elasticity of it. There's lots of identification features that are nice and easy on that. Although not a good green to have in a salad, but nettles are coming through now. So give them a little blanch and then you can use them the similar way as spinach. So maybe use it instead of bags of spinach. A uh, much more fun plant that's coming through at the moment, which we will talk about probably more next month, is wild garlic. The nice spring shoots when it's coming through right now and early, they're really small. It's beautiful for in your salads. It's not quite as punchy, I don't think, as it gets sort of to its middle growth. And then when it gets older again, it loses its punchiness. But I think the ones at the beginning are lovely. I know certain patches around Cambridge, we've got some invasive species that are worth picking. So we've got the fewer flowered leeks and also the three-cornered garlic. 
there's two or three spots around Cambridge where these grow in abundance. So if you keep your eyes peeled, they'll look a bit like grasses, really. So a lot of the patches that I know, they grow all around the sedge and stuff like that. The sedge has got the kind of W pattern in it in the grass. Whereas, yeah, your alliums have got your classic garlic smell. You'll notice mm. instantly. The smell with alliums is always quite interesting, actually, because it grows with aromaticulatum, which is obviously a poisonous plant. Smell is always something that I try and discourage people from doing to tell the difference between them. It's better to look at identification features because with the alliums, the smell's in the oils, in the leaves. So as soon as you've got that on your finger, it's very easy to cons- confuse the smell in your finger with the c- smell of the plant you're sniffing. So, yeah, it works for the first one that you pick, but if you're picking and picking and picking, you've been out there picking for hours, your hands are going to stink of garlic anyway. Right, so this other one that you said is not good, what is that? That's yeah, Aram- is that Lords and Ladies? Yes, it is, yeah. That's another one of the common names for it. It's got quite a few. But the leaves just grow, and it's, it's right at the beginning of the season where it's the easy one to confuse. And the best way to tell the difference is to turn it over, the leaf. And you're looking at the back. So wild garlic has veins that run from the top to the bottom of the leaf, whereas Aram has veins that run like cracked ice. So if you look at it, they're kind of like almost like shattering of glass kind of thing. And they're all over the place. So it's the easiest way to tell the difference. I've got some arums in our garden. Uh, sadly, no wild garlic. So I must <laughs> go and have a look at the back of the leaves. Yeah, no, it's, it's, an, it's a good one to learn because it just does grow so close. When the plants both get bigger, they don't look anything alike, I don't think. However, when they're in their first stage and they're all curling up and just coming through the soil, they can be quite easy to mistake then. But the, the arum leaf would then be poisonous, would it? I thought it was always the berries, but... No, no, it's uh, the leaf as well. It's the oxalate crystals on it. So they're like tiny little needles, basically. So it's it's more of a huge irritant than anything. Oh, OK, so but not it, it, poisonous it, as such. No, but, but it's very, very painful unpleasant, to eat. Right. Yeah, I would say it's more than unpleasant. It's definitely one to avoid. But yeah, that, the wild garlic is obviously another one that's great to have in salad leaves that people can identify with confidence. And um, we've also got a lot of the spring greens starting to come through, things like Jack by the Hedge, Ground Ivy. So Ground Ivy is like a cross between sage and mint almost in flavour. Mm-hmm. So that's another nice little herb we can use. You don't want everything to be punchy when you're doing a spring salad bag, so you do want to have your more kind of plainer tasting herbs in there like your dandelions maybe like some plantain leaves young hawthorn leaves are a really good one as well they're not packed full of flavor but as i say you don't want everything in your salad mix to be big and punchy and bold mm. you want to have some things that bulk it out a bit more and yeah there is so many leaves around us look on the young tree leaves the young birch and beech leaves are both edible and really nice in salads as well so there is plenty out there let's try and all of us even if it's only once try and pick a salad for a meal from the outside rather than going to the shop and buying it. I'm sure people must have done this before because the name for hawthorn leaves was bread and butter, wasn't it? Bread and cheese, yeah. It used to be where you take buds of the flower and the young leaf and roll them up and eat them together. I like them as a bulking agent more, I think, to be entirely honest, the young leaves. The best part of the hawthorn to eat as a flavour for me is the blossom. It's got really strong flavour. And then the berries are really interesting, kind of like a mild apple. We ferment them as a hot sauce, basically. But it's got quite a lot of uses through the plant and it's obviously got a big history of medicinal uses for blood pressures and things like that. But we won't go into that. It's not my area. OK, but, so that's the salad challenge. Yeah. Um, anything else that we need to start beginning to think about? Yes, so we mentioned the beech leaves very briefly just there. As the beech leaves start to come through, we want the young leaves and we want it for one thing only, and it's beech leaf noyau. It's our absolute favourite liqueur. Really, really easy to make. The full recipe is on my social medias. If you go on Facebook and do a search for noyau, N-O-Y-A-U, it'll come up with our recipe. 
you're basically taking three weeks where you soak the beech leaves in gin, then you add a stock syrup to it, add some brandy and leave it to sit for about six months and it'll be ready for Christmas. Oh, that sounds lovely. It's phenomenal. The notes of like vanilla in there and everything like that. Um, my little tip for making it is that I would say cheap gin is fine, decent brandy. We normally use a VSOP or something like that. I'm not saying get, get a ridiculous expensive one, but get a nicer step up from a cheap Napoleon. It, it's quite a sweet drink. It's big hits of vanilla and everything like that. But over the sort of November onwards, it is just my favourite little winter tipple. That sounds more interesting, more exciting. I mean, Damson Gin and um, Slow Gin is beautiful, but this sounds like a, a more interesting challenge. Perhaps if you way thinking ahead for Christmas gifts for next year. Really oh, good idea. Yeah, exactly. It's a great one for Christmas gifts and it's something that you can do at home that's really easy that chances are most other people won't have got. So you can be a bit unique and a, yeah, a bit cheeky with that. The other thing that we're looking out for at the moment is the month of March is birch season. So for birch tapping and everything like that. So it's where you take extract the sap. It's the same way as they would over in America, say, for maple syrup. So we do quite a few things with it. We do the branch tapping, so we're looking for branches, a sort of the width of our little finger. Snap them off near the end, and you'll see all the liquid just starts dripping out, and then you can just tie bottles to it. Not too invasive on the tree or anything like that. Wow. It's very easy to do with minimal equipment. You don't need to take a drill with you. It's, it's easy to do. You need some string and a bottle, and you can just go fill up like that. That sounds fantastic. And, and this is silver birch? Yeah, silver birch as well. They're, they're in abundance, obviously. They're really easy to identify. You know it's going to work because you break the branch off and you can see the sap coming out immediately. March is the month to do it. Our little tip is we make something called birch bark caramel, which is fantastic. All the little bits of branch that we snap off, we then take home and make a stock with. So literally put in a pot, They've already because they're already full of the birch syrup as well. So you've got that lovely kind of minerality that comes from the syrup. You've got the biscuitiness that comes from the bark. So, yeah, we literally cover them in water, bring them up to the boil, leave them to simmer for a couple of hours. Then we strain that off and we take that stock, add lots and lots and lots of sugar and bring it down to a caramel. Well, basically till it's like syrup consistency. And we use that for loads of dishes and you've got this wonderful, like, mineral, biscuity caramel that goes really well. I'm eyeing some birch trees outside at the moment. So just tie it on with a bit of string then, basically. Yeah, snap the branch, you'll see the liquid come out, put the bottle over the top of it and tie it around with a bit of string. Just, as you say, wait till it's actually dripping out, presumably. It's just, it's basically when the weather's warm enough. So the tree's got to be drawing all of its sap up. If it's not dripping, it's just too early. So come back and check in a couple of days and go again. And you've normally got about a month period where it's there. We should be coming into that sort of time about now. So I'll be going out and checking my areas this week. Mm. Uh, Birch sap's quite fashionable in restaurants. You get like 100 gallons and reduce it down to about 100 mil and then get this really intense liquid kind of thing. <laughs> Not quite that extreme. And it's become very fashionable over the last few years to do, but I just kind of feel there's much more fun things to do with it as well. Mm. It's, it's basically, it's almost like the freshest, slightly sweet, minerally water you'll get. We do a lot of exciting, fun things, and we'll talk about more about them next month when we can give you some recipes and things like that about what we do. Oh, that sounds really interesting. No, I have tried birch sap water, and in fact, I think when I was in Finland, I did try a birch sap drink, and it's got this really interesting taste to it, which you wouldn't think. It's just really refreshing, I find. I absolutely love the stuff. Yeah, so it's a real nice product, and it? it's a nice, easy way to do it rather than getting your drills out. And I'm not sure how invasive that is to the tree, but it's easier to do this way with the branch exactly. snapping. You don't need any equipment with you, really. And rather fun, because you can actually see it collecting in your, in your collecting bottles. <laughs> so there's a lot to be thinking about and a lot to look forward to for March then, isn't there, Steve? Yeah, it's a good fun month for foraging, so go out there see a bit more and enjoy it yeah 
I love the sound of the birch sap. Some great ideas there from Steve Thompson, the foraging chef. There's green onions with our job section. And first up, some very nice jobs at the Cambridge Cheese Company. Both full and part-time positions are available. Each require alternate Saturday working. You can email cambridgecheese at gmail.com if you're interested. And the Griller and Lamb in the Cambridge Blue in Guaida Street are looking for a junior sous chef. And the new Gastronomy in Bridge Street is looking for a chef and cook. Various chef roles are available at Parker's Tavern in Regent Street. A junior sous chef is needed at the Fellows House in Milton Road. Novi in Regent Street wants a head chef. And there's lots of positions available at Camp Cuisines pubs in and around Cambridge. Their website has details. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. Coming up on Cambridge 105, the Gadget Guide will be back on the 12th of March. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.